Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this week, I have an amazing story. Now, there's been a lot written and quite a few documentaries on early television history. The I Love Lucy era is very well documented. You know, I mean, there's been documentaries and even Aaron Sorkin movies about I Love Lucy. Plus, there are all these nostalgia channels. And so some of these old series like Armist Brooks and the Honeymooners and Bilko and all the Westerns and all of the cop shows are available on various platforms. So they still live on. You know, if you mention to somebody 77 Sunset Strip or Dobie Gillis or one of those shows, uh, people go, hey, I, I may not know it. Uh, I may be too young to have watched it, but, I, but I've heard of it. Well, what if I were to tell you that there was a woman who wrote 11,000 scripts, owned and starred in a national sitcom that was a huge hit for 10 years on the radio in the 40s, you know, back when there's the Jack Benny show, etc. It transferred to television and was a big hit for six years. At one point, it aired the same night as I Love Lucy. And no one has ever heard of her. How could that be? How could that possibly be? Her name was Peg Lynch. Who? Peg Lynch. And for good measure, she lived another 54 years after her last show was broadcast. Like I said, this is an amazing story. Now, I had heard about her years ago from somebody, and I was always fascinated by the story. It's like, how could somebody who was so in the public eye for 16 years not even be a footnote? How can she be completely forgotten? Well, I tracked down her daughter, Astrid King, and she is trying to keep the legacy of her mother alive. She's putting together a podcast. She has tapes. If you go to peglynch.com, there are videos, there are copies of scripts, there are radio shows. There's tons of material. It's like this person not only existed, 
but there's all of this evidence that that she existed. It's still out there. Anyway, uh, Astrid King is trying to keep her legacy alive, and we had a lovely chat, which I present this week on Hollywood and Levine. It's the profile of a remarkable woman who was an unsung pioneer of both radio and television. So finally, after all these years, meet Peg Lynch. Well, let's start at the beginning, because your mother had a long and storied career. She began in radio when she was 14, so that would have been roughly when? What what are we talking oh, about? You didn't say there was going to be a math question right oh. off. Uh, <laughs> uh, she was born in 1916, so... Uh, so in the 20s, late 30s. 20s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She started at the station, still going strong, actually, in Rochester, Minnesota, called K-Rock, K-R-O-C. And uh, what was happening then in radio was that it was this new thing. And people, rich businessmen who knew absolutely nothing about radio, thought it'd be fun to own a radio station. So they would convert. Oh, this one is in a, in a former bank, I think. And they... Uh, opened a radio station without knowing the first thing about it and how my mother at the age of 14 knew knew that they needed sponsors or knew that they should do celebrity interviews i have absolutely no idea it was just instinctive in her anyway she did do all that she and also she, started writing uh she you did. know well, she it started writing she started writing commercial spots for them. That's why she was initially hired as a copywriter for ads and sponsors, which was the big thing, I suppose, then as now. But it was just handled a little differently then. And she uh, came up with sponsors. She'd go around town persuading them they needed to be on this thing called radio. And because her mother worked as a nurse at the Mayo Clinic, you've heard of the Mayo Clinic. Yeah. Okay, well, Charlie Mayo, Mayo was still alive then. Mayo was still alive. Well, Dr. <laughs> Charlie Mayo, uh, my grandmother was his chief orthopedic nurse. And since my mom's dad had died with the Spanish flu pandemic when she was just two, uh, Charlie Mayo sort of took her and uh, her mother under his wing. He kind of he kind of looked after them in a very above board way, I hate that. But um, Peg had uh, access to the clinic. And so at the, everybody in Rochester worked for the clinic at some point or other. It was a medical town. And so she, so many celebrities came in and out of the clinic that she was, oh, interviewing Ernest Hemingway. Wow. Uh, Jeanette McDonald. Um, who else? Um, who's that? Lou Gehrig, the poor man, just before he found out he had what later became known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Um and what they what they made of this little skinny brunette going up to them with a pad and a paper, I have no idea. She doesn't remember what she asked them. But it was sitting in the examining room while they were drawing blood. Did you I, have a few minutes to exactly. answer a couple of questions? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so that was her start in radio, and it was so exciting for everybody. And as they grew up uh, and went on to junior college and then college, it, there weren't courses. You couldn't get a degree in radio or media then. 
but uh, their only uh, contact was if you knew somebody who had gone on and shit. There was a, a classmate a few years older who'd gone on to radio in Chicago. And through him, she uh, got, got a start, really. And um, that was it. And he was making, uh, I don't know, he was making something like $1,000 a week. Then. Wow. Quite wow. extraordinary. Voiceovers, he was on a, I can't remember the name of the show offhand, but it was a popular uh, soap. It was the beginning of the soaps on radio. And uh, she told her mother what she was going to do. Of course, her mother wanted her to be, she didn't think there was anything to this writing and acting business. She, she was a medical person and she really wanted my mother to be a doctor, I think, or marry a doctor. And her whole life, really, she never quite understood what, what my mother managed to achieve. And I don't think rated it very highly, but you know, you're never a hero in your own home, are you? Right. Well, eventually, I guess, she's working on radio stations, and she gets to do this, I guess, like, 15-minute segment, and she creates this um, Ethel and Albert program, which she writes, and uh, there are a lot of people who say, you know, She's kind of, you know, the founder of sitcoms in many ways, because we're talking way early, and mm. she kind of created this form, didn't she? Well, yes. I mean, there were so-called situation comedies on the air, and she was led by them initially. But, you know, as I said before, she was a copywriter, and she got down to this where was it? Albert Lee, Minnesota. And she was supposed to be, she thought she was going to there to write copy. And next thing you know, she's having to do a, a weekly half hour theater show, a farm news program, three 10 minute plays, two five minute sketches, a half hour play on Sundays. This is all for $70 a month, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, she got so bored writing about Alice Chalmers farm tractors that she said, she said, uh, I keep writing about these tractors all the time, telling everybody that the best thing's going. Why doesn't the husband ever buy it? And so uh, she said, um, she created, they finally said, you can, you can let him buy the tractor. So she created Ethel and Albert as a three-minute sketch. It was a filler, really, between the news show and the, and the woman's show. And it just took off from there. Everybody liked it. She played Ethel. There was nobody else. The station announcer played Albert. Can you act? She said. He said, sure. Who can't? <laughs> <laughs> I could and, give you a list. <laughs> yeah, I could, yeah, I could add to it. And uh, it just it escalated. It just went on from there. And uh, she, it wasn't until she went to a couple of small radio stations making her way around the country. But it wasn't until Cumberland, Maryland. It was about 1940. 1940 and she got fan mail. And it was one letter that changed her life, basically, because it was a woman who said, oh, Miss Lynch, I just love your show. I laughed and laughed and laughed because what you described was the exact same thing that had happened to me. And my mother thought, oh, my gosh, I've been on the wrong track. She'd been sort of creating dizzy, silly, silly things, that silly situations. And she didn't realize that what people were like, identifying with what they loved was something that they could identify with that they had done themselves. So that's um, why she 
why her show was so real, why people liked it. They saw themselves and ordinary things, you know, trivial things, but your life is full of these trivial decisions every day. So, no, it wasn't slapstick like Lucy or I Mary Joan or some of the My Little Marjorie, all the ones I loved, of course. Um, mm-hmm. up. Uh, and that was her format, and she stuck with it, and it, and it, and it saw her out. You know, she she wrote over eleven thousand scripts in her lifetime. She lived to ninety eight, and uh, you know, when you're a kid of somebody uh, from uh, who's that accomplished, you don't realize it at the time. Right, just mom. It's just mom. Yeah, and 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 quite an irritating mom at times, as mothers <laughs> can be. And you know, it she might have said that about you. Yes. I know. <laughs> Oh, she totally did. But it's um, it was. It, I was fortunate in that I, I, she was still alive when I started to really appreciate her accomplishments. So I had a good, I suppose, six or seven years, maybe more, that I could grill her, that I could ask her about these anecdotes, that I could get the real story about things, items around the house, uh, what really happened, and. Uh, so I'm very, very grateful for all that. She never thought she did anything special. Well, she did. She, she did. did a lot special. So here's an interesting okay. fact. So she goes to New York. Yeah. And NBC is interested in doing her show and putting it on the national network. And she turns Great. it down because she wanted to retain ownership of the show and not give it to NBC. That's astounding to me, that that for her, owning the show was that important. Well, it's also astounding because she had, it was within, you know, a, a month of landing in New York with $500 in her pocket, two suitcases, and NBC made this offer and she turned them down because they wanted to own it. And she said, well, that's all I have. If I give it to you, I'll have nothing. And it was the next day that she was moving into her new apartment in Gramercy Park. And she got a telegram. It was from ABC. And the man said, I hear you have a show we might be interested in. Call me. And she didn't have a phone. <laughs> and... Because only only doctors at that time, this was wartime, uh, could afford a phone. So she didn't have a phone, so she had to go to the drugstore. And she had just been shortchanged with her last $10 bill about half an hour earlier. So she had no money to call ABC. So she told the, the man at the counter, she said, told him the sob story. He said, here, here's the phone. Call him up. And within a month, she was on network radio, ABC, from 1944 to 1948. Extraordinary, and she, she just, owned her show. They were they were willing show. to she, let her own the show. They were willing to let her own the show, and she retained that ownership until she died, which is what really makes her special. You know, she created a show. Lots of people do that. She acted in it. Few people do that. Uh, she produced it to a certain extent because she was paying for it, but she owned it too. And. Uh, no one really did that and retained the ownership until they died. I know Gertrude Berg had her show, but she sold she sold the rights later on, I have been told. Um, so the, the result was 
uh, well, there's many results of this, but because she owned the show, she owned everything on the show. Not only these scripts and carbon copies of these 10,000 scripts, but there were uh, reel-to-reel tapes. There was kinescopes, which was before television, well, not before television, but before video. And she owned the furniture. I mean, you turn over half the furniture in the house. It said property of CBS and Peg Lynch, um, which I retained. <laughs> so I know. So, and this, this traveled along with her. So, so that I used to say to her, mom, we have to figure this out. Your archive. She said, what? I said, your archive. I mean, what are we going to do with it? And she said, well, I don't know. I said, what do you mean? It's just going to sit in boxes in some basement and get wet. And she said, well, it's not important. I said, it is important. She couldn't get it through her head, or maybe she was being modest, um, which annoyed me too. But we we found a wonderful home for it all at the University of Oregon. It's called the Peg Lynch Papers. There are libraries out there. But I wouldn't let anything out of the house until I had a digital copy. So you can imagine how long that took. Oh my God. Yeah. I started so she- scanning I know I started scanning scripts and I was I said, No, 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 I'm gonna do this. And you know, after about two weeks of that, the the United Parcel Man would come in. I'd say, hi, do you know how to scan scripts? It's very easy. I'll show you. And so we eventually got this all done. Um, and and she needs to, I just feel this, it's not even an urge. It's just I feel it's this, the, essential that I promote her work and bring her back into the public eye because oddly enough, the fact that she owned her show worked against her because no network owned it. It never went into syndication. Yeah. And also, also, the television was done live. Now, I have the live shows. I have the kinescopes from them. They right. Can- but the kinescope, the quality of the kinescopes are probably terrible or certainly not broadcast worthy. And so it's not like I Love Lucy, where it was on film. film. And they were able to preserve it. So let's move ahead. This new medium called television comes along. And she starts out doing some Ethel and Albert sketches on the Kate Smith show. And then eventually she gets her own half hour show. And uh, again, she stars in it. And and it's on the air for like five, six years and it's amazing to me, I guess because it was done live, mm. that people don't know who she is. You know, how did that, it's just, I can't wrap my mind around somebody being a successful national figure for over 20 years and now basically forgotten. forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Well, this is my job, you see. This is my job. I didn't grow up thinking, oh, I know what I'm going to do in life. It is, I've just fallen into it. I'm delighted I've fallen into it. Um, and uh, it's what? I've, I've come up with a series of podcasts about her life. I have a show that I do with my colleague James Lilacs of the Star Tribune in Minneapolis called A Funny Woman. We tour with that. Uh, over here, I've got a company of actors called the Peg Lynch Players, and I'm trying to um, get, uh, sell the kinescopes at the moment. And quite honestly, they're not in bad shape at all. They've been cleaned and rewound. They need to, but as time goes by, where technology uh, gets better and better, and and so 
I know they can be enhanced far better today than they would have been 30 years ago. Um, the uh, I was going to tell you something about the kinescopes. It's now gone out of my head. Uh, oh, her move to television. Uh, she was asked, actually, to go out to L.A. and put Ethel and Albert on film. And she turned it down. Right or wrong, she turned it down. And this was, what, like 1956? Yeah, probably around then, mid-50s. She just didn't and, want to leave New York? or She didn't want to do it on film? Well, she told me, and I've since found evidence that supports this, she said she didn't want me growing up in L.A. She didn't want her daughter growing up in Hollywood. She didn't think it was good for kids. And she made that decision. So it's my fault, basically. (laughs) (laughs) As usual. Well, I grew up in L.A. Yes, and and I turned out great. I bet your mother's very proud. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that was her decision. And there are also some extenuating circumstances. She had she had so many fans, um, you know, from housewives to the politicians to quite famous ones too. And one particular one was quite well-known movie star. And she had, she was about to marry him at one point and turned him down in the end again, because she didn't, she couldn't, she could, didn't like it. They didn't like the life of being married to a movie star. She didn't like that sort of attention. A couple of unpleasant things happened, which I go into in the podcast, but, but um, anyway, right or wrong, she says she decided to stay in New York. So, um, did it bother her that other shows like I Love Lucy and you mentioned all of those others like My Little Margie and uh, December Bride and Mm. I Mary Joan? Mm. They all went into syndication, they were all seen for years. Did it bother her that when her show ended in 1956, it disappeared? (laughs) Well, I think it. I think it bothered her, but she didn't really have time. I think it bothered her later in life, but she didn't have time then because the day her show was canceled, she got an offer from CBS to go back on radio. And so she moved on over to that. And by this time, tape had been invented. So it was not as hectic. She was exhausted. She got married in 1948. One, One reporter called her, Peg, I slept through my honeymoon lynch because she... You know, as you were saying before, you're doing a show live, writing a half hour, well, you know, from writing sitcoms, yeah. half an hour by yourself and rehearsing the next week's show and coming up with ideas for the third week's show. And she was getting four hours sleep a night for years and years and years. So initially, the idea of not having anything to do uh, really appealed to her. And she got a, got a chance to do things that she didn't. Uh, you know, people think of the glamorous time in New York she had, but she was she turned down JFK at dinner date with him. She said, "I can't go out." He'd come to the show because Pat, his Pat Lawford, his sister, was a gopher, not very good one. I hasten to add, either on the Kate Smith show, <laughs> Peg, not very bright. Peg said she didn't know who she was. Called her Pat, and the producer said, "You know who you just sent out for coffee?" She said, "No." And JFK came to pick up his sister and he stayed for the show and he laughed and he said, you are having dinner with me after the show. She said, I can't. I got a script to write. He said, no, you don't understand. You're having dinner with me. She said, I can't. I can't. I got to get it for. I have a script to write. 
And so she did. She, she did not have a huge social life at all. And so she started doing that. And then very late in life, somebody got in touch with her with old time radio and television conventions, which I don't think she even knew existed. I didn't either. And she had about 20 years of going around the country performing and loving it. She really did. She had a good time doing that. And yes, I think she realized she probably made a mistake um, career-wise not to go to L.A. But, hey, she said she was not the kind of person to regret decisions. She just said, "Get you know, there's no use crying over something. If you can't do anything about it, you've done this. Just move on to it. So she um, she did. She did. She was a fun mother, too. She was a really fun mother. And and when she suddenly had time to do things she hadn't done when she was working, she wanted to travel because she was a very well-read little girl growing up in Rochester, in Cass in Rochester, Minnesota. I think she'd read all of Dickens by the time she was eight or something annoying. And um, she wanted to see Europe. So she took me out of school. We'd be gone from anywhere from three weeks to three months. This is up until I was 16, even. And I took work with me. And she got to went to Egypt. She loved ancient Egypt and Rome and Greece. And so she did things. And she really, I think if you spoke to her and I said she didn't, she doesn't really have anything to complain about. So she doesn't watch. She, she didn't watch I Love Lucy reruns and go, Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, well, there was sort of a rivalry uh, with with the Lucy show. The Lucy show and Ozzy and Harriet asked her to come out and write for them. And she said no. First of all, she said, well, how can I do that? I've got my own show. I can't do that. And they wooed her and wooed her. And she said no. And I think there were a couple of incidents where a similar situation within the episode happened with Lucy and with Ethel and Albert. But because Lucy was filmed and Ethel Albert was live, I think somebody was accusing Lucy of stealing the show or Peg of stealing, not the show, the idea mm-hmm. had nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. And people said, oh, you've dyed your hair red because of Lucy. She said, not at all. It's black and white television. I was looking bald in front of a black background, so I had to lighten it up. Uh, but she, I, I, she thought Lucy was funny, obviously, and she was very friendly with Jess Oppenheimer, who created it, and his son Greg today. And um, she, um, but it wasn't her style. It just wasn't her style. She couldn't do that. Occasionally, they bordered on a little bit of slapstick for her. Well, one show, which she wasn't, one of her Ethel and Alberts, her television half hours, which she was not at all happy with because she didn't, it was a little of a, a little um, out of her depth. And it was Albert who got a pumpkin stuck on his head for Halloween. He was putting it on as a joke. It was a real one too. It was live television. And then they couldn't get it off. And, and they couldn't get it off in real life either, but they couldn't get it off on the show. That was part of the plot. Anyway, uh, about a week later, she was passing the Players Club in New York, down on Gramercy Park, and an actor friend was coming out. She knew vaguely. He said, oh, I was just, um, your ears must be burning. I was just talking to George S. Kaufman, who came in and said, I have just seen the funniest show I have ever seen in my life. It's an idea that a comedy writer gets once in a lifetime, would give his eye teeth for us. About this guy, I don't know who wrote it. I don't know who starred in it. 
but this guy gets a pumpkin stuck on his head. And so, so wow. she felt better about it then. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, you spoke of December Bride earlier. She replaced, she was the summer replacement for December Bride. That was her entree onto half hour television. Uh, uh. And, uh, and the, the, the sponsors hated it because Ethel and Albert got far better reviews than December Bride. And uh, her show was sabotaged, which is another story, which I go into in the podcast. But it was, it was horrible what the network did to her and the sponsors. Because the one they just paid, you know, $2 million for was uh, not getting the good reviews, saying, oh, why does December Bride have to come back? We want Ethel and Albert. So. Well, you figure something like that had to happen behind the scenes because to write and star in a successful sitcom back in the 50s when there were very few options and probably, you know, 40% of the viewing audience was watching your show for it not to continue. There had to be some behind mm. the scenes submarining going on Hollywood. I mean, yeah. you know, you know, she's right. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to live in Hollywood, you know, but there's a sub there's San Fernando Valley. You could have lived a nice <laughs> suburban life out here, you know, well, aside I- from her, aside from her acting, uh, I yeah. really think, she needs to be recognized as one of the, if not the, first women comedy writers mm. to essentially write in the sitcom form. You know, there are so few women writers, especially in, in those days, and for her to be such a force to write 11,000 scripts, to write her entire series and star in it um, is just phenomenal. And I think uh, the Television Academy should recognize her, but certainly the Writers Guild should recognize her. Recognize her in what way? Acknowledge the fact that she was a pioneer and what her contribution was. Because when, you know, they talk about, you know, women comedy writers, you know, in the early 50s, you know, they'll mention Gertrude Berg. I know. You know, uh, they'll they'll mention uh, Madeline Davis. But, uh, yeah, they they won't mention her. Again, you know. Well, they don't know because they they don't don't know know who, exactly. They're they're unaware of who she is and who, what her contribution is. I mean, we would get telephone calls every once in a while from some student of radio and television who had stumbled upon her archive and say, oh, Miss Lynch, you should come to interview and that sort of thing. Well, this is how this is how James Lilacs from the Minneapolis Star Tribune came to it with whom I work, came to uh, know about Peg. He was going through old uh, radio sitcoms and he said, what? starring Peg Lynch and written by Peg Lynch in 750 episodes. And he started listening. He said, this is gold. This is wonderful. So he Googled her. He said, oh, my God, she's still alive. Well, there's no death date. Wonder if she's alive. And he found the number from information. She lived in Western Massachusetts. And he rang expecting, you know, somebody to say, oh, she's resting right now. <laughs> he said, 
hi, I'm uh, looking for Peg Lynch. <laughs> My mother said, well, you found her. And they became fast friends. So, of course, as a result of that, I get a phone call over in England middle of the night because my mother never got the time difference right between england and massachusetts <laughs> but hi in the middle of dinner i said well no mom i'm, I'm it's 2 30 in the morning oh oh listen to this this darling man from minnesota just rang me and he wants to interview me isn't that great i said well who i've invited him to the house i said peg you can't invite everybody you meet to the house who are they anyway we investigated and um became firm friends but she, her accomplishments are quite extraordinary, and um, I'm doing my best to to get her out there and to get her name out there again. Well, it's, it's a fascinating a story. It is. It's fun. I'm having a great time because there, uh, she, she, fortunately, when she started on radio, her first job, she wrote to her mother at least twice a week, and her mother kept all these letters fortunately typed so I can read them and put them chronologically into books. So it documents the entire, not just her rise to fame, but the beginning of radio and how radio took off and then into television. Sadly, it stops when my grandmother came to live with her in 1947. But uh, so there were over a thousand letters to go through there. And she's given so many interviews over the years and she just kept everything. So it's uh, it's a it's a gold mine here of of information and funny stories and it's uh, she's had an, had an incredible life I have to say. So last question. Yes. She gets her show on TV. Yeah. She then does radio. People don't remember, but CBS was still doing radio shows, Amos and Andy and Gunsmoke and things like that, up until yeah. like around 1960. So she has a show on radio, yeah. and then she, you know, chills, takes some time off, right. you know, go to see a sphinx or two. Uh, but now, <laughs> now you're talking, uh, what, another 20, 30 years, something like that. What yeah. was this amazingly productive woman doing over that span of time, was she writing screenplays? Was she writing well, books? What was well, she doing? She had, she had three more radio series. She worked for uh, NBC Radio Monitor, did, I don't know, 150 shows for them. She created uh, Ethel and Albert Older, which became The Little Things in Life. Uh, and she did another series out in the Midwest. I think that was a short-lived thing. But we all kept asking that question. We kept saying... Why, why don't you, aren't you writing? Don't writers write? And she'd say, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I'm tired. I'm tired. Or then she would say, say that again. That's really funny. I can get a script out of that. And she'd write, write it down. And I think she missed somebody to work with. She worked very closely with a director producer named Walter Hart, who didn't write, but he would help her plot things. He was fun. You, you know, it's easier to, when you spend so many years writing by yourself, it's it's fun to have somebody to knock ideas back and forth with. And sure. she missed that terribly. And she, he died. Alan Bunce, her Albert, died. All her Alberts died long before she did. Richard Widmark um, was one of Richard her Richard Widmark. She yeah. loathed him. He was a nasty piece of work. <laughs> he would get up and leave before his before she'd finished speaking at the end of the show. Uh -huh. he was, uh, no, she didn't care for him. 
Um, but she, you know, she, that she, the fact that she survived and did well in what was, well, certainly a man's world back then, uh, is um, incredible. And I'm hugely proud of her. And I do hope I've said that enough to her over, over the years. Rather than, God, are you wearing that shirt again? God, why didn't you, you got egg down the front. <laughs> you know? Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. The things we wish we said. But I did, I did, um, I did, I created a website for her. And she, although she wasn't that technically minded, I think she did understand that and did appreciate that. I said, we've got to get you out there again, Mom. Yeah, if you go to the website, which is peglynch.com, you have videos, you have the radio shows, people can read one of the scripts. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating website. And again, this is a pioneer of television who should be recognized, who really was a force. And uh, anything we can do to at least have the public start to recognize that, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, it wasn't just Lucy. You know, mm. there was there was this person, too. There was this person, too. Yeah. yeah. Astrid, thank I you so her. much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Kim. And uh, uh, I will I will get on with the book now. OK. And, you know, uh, if you have kids, it's nice here in the San Fernando Valley. You're in London. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's lovely. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> it's a I've wonderful a lot place of- to raise your children. I spent a lot of time in California with yeah. my, my, my ex-husband was an actor. So we spent a lot of time out there. I was going to say, you know, you, you could have learned to surf when you were 16. <laughs> yeah, maybe been on Baywatch. <laughs> so many, so many wasted opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks so much. Lovely. Absolute pleasure. Was I right? What a crazy story. Peg Lynch. 11,000 scripts. I just, I mean, I can't conceive of that. They were doing these shows live. So every week she had to write a half-hour script, rehearse it, and star in it live. And this went on television for six years. You think somebody, somebody would have heard of her. Wow. Anyway, our thanks as always to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. My email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, where I showcase a number of my cartoons. And I am on Twitter at Ken Levine. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next week right here on Hollywood and Levine.